Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we go to the San Francisco Bay Area, an area that's home to more than 8 million people. On the eastern edge of the Bay Area stands Mount Diablo at almost 4,000 feet tall. From the west, it rises above rolling hills, but from the east, it's a striking lone beacon rising out of the Sacramento Valley. From the summit, you can see virtually all the way across California from San Francisco to the Sierra Nevada Mountains. In my family, we jokingly call it the Lonely Mountain like it's out of a Tolkien book. Running along the western edge of that mountain is a trail that provides a rare opportunity to hike and camp in wilderness right up against such a populated area. In fact, that such a trail even exists here is a real conservation success story. The trail goes through six different protected areas that cobbled together allow the trail to exist. The hike goes through rolling hills and oak savanna and has enough up and down to challenge any hiker. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Diablo Trail in the coast range of Northern California. Welcome to 2021, everyone. I know that's something we've all been waiting to say for a long time. I know 2020 was a tough year, but I hope this show has given you something interesting and fun to enjoy, and something to help you make adventures you dream about become a reality in 2021 and beyond. First, I just want to say this podcast has been a really fun project for me, and I'm excited and overwhelmed by your support of the show. I started the show in July 2020, and since then we've had a pretty overwhelming response. We've had listeners from 38 different countries so far, hundreds of cities, and every continent. So that's really great to see. I have some great episodes planned for 2021 I'm really excited about. We're going to get to continents we haven't yet covered on the show, like Europe and Asia. And I'll mix that in, of course, with some hikes that I've done over the years. Feel free to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or more importantly, any suggestions for hikes you'd like me to cover on the show. I'm not going to maintain any email list. There won't be a newsletter. There won't be any spam. So no worries about any of that. Just like to hear from you. Particularly with any thoughts you have about the format of the show and how you think it's going and any hikes you'd like to see me cover in the future. So don't be shy. Reach out at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. Before we jump into the episode, I'd like to remind you of Outdoor Herbivore. Outdoor Herbivore makes tasty vegetarian backpacking meals, but you don't have to be a vegetarian to enjoy them. They're delicious backpacking meals, uh, no matter what you like to eat. And they have plenty of calories for a hungry hiker. They're packaged in easy boil-in-a-bag packaging, and there are lots of great options to choose from. Trails Worth Hiking listeners get a discount of 10% off their order. Enter the code TWH10P, all all caps on the letters, so capital T-W-H, 
10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10% for a discount. I recently ordered uh, a couple of meals for my kids for stocking stuffers. My kids are old enough now where they do backpacking trips with their friends without me at times, sometimes with me, sometimes without. This way, I thought they would have some great backpacking meals to take with them. And I tried the discount code and it does work. So certainly uh, start stocking up for the hiking season. Check them out at OutdoorHerbivore.com. On this episode, my good friend and hiking buddy Tony Wong is back on the show. We're going to be talking about the Diablo Trail, which is a trail that literally ends almost at my front door. I thought that in light of the fact that we are still in the middle of a pandemic here at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, it would be good to cover a trail that literally almost ends at my front door. Uh, because I think we all have trails that are close to home and we maybe dream about trails that are far away and are something different than what we know and what we see every day. But I think the pandemic is a good reminder that there's a lot of great things very close to home and we should go see them. The Diablo Trail is what's closest to my home and I hope this will inspire you either to try the Diablo Trail itself or maybe there's something close to your home that you've been putting off and never hiked because it just seems too obvious uh, or not interesting enough to you because it's so close to home and it's something you see all the time or come across quite often. And so I hope this show will, will make you think about those opportunities that are close to home and get out and try some of those trails. If you do that, uh, write me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com and tell me about it. I'd like to hear about uh, great backpacking routes that were very easy for you to do that are close to your home. All right, I hope you enjoy this conversation that Tony and I had about the Diablo Trail. Tony Wong, welcome back to Trails Worth Hiking. Yeah, thanks for having me back. You know what's happening here? Uh, what? You're getting, you know, this is your third appearance on the show and not that many episodes. You're getting dangerously close to becoming a co-host. <laughs> you do all of the work. I just get to yak. Uh, that, that works for me. Just like I can all right. do all the planning. I just kind of can follow along. Okay, perfect. So are you ready to talk today about your home turf? Yes. Okay. So this hike is in the East San Francisco Bay, east of San Francisco, about, I'm guessing, 25 miles-ish or so east of San Francisco. And what does the area look like? What does the area where Mount Diablo is look like? Mount Diablo, I think, has two sides to it. The one side where I grew up is a small town of Clayton. It's in the foothills of Mount Diablo. It's a very angular peak, very tall features, some parts rolling hill, grassy hills, Spartan number of trees, not, not a lot, actually. There's a little history going back. Uh, 1973, 1974, there was a fire started by uh, lightning that burned a lot of the big trees. So for, I was born in 1969. So growing up, uh, a lot of those big trees were gone and kind of slow, slowly coming back till today. So yeah, it's got a, you're right. It's, I think it's sparsely treed for the most part on lots of parts of the mountain. Um, a lot of that is because it's basically kind of an oak savanna, right? Like grasslands interspersed with oak trees. Yes. Yes. Mount Diablo, I think is the tallest peak that we have in the Bay area. Also has kind of one of these longest unobstructed views, I believe, uh, for other parts of the country. 
but it's just surrounded by, I would say, grassland, really, and rolling hills. And there's also some, when you get further up the mountain in some of the areas, there are pine trees. Yes. Uh, but it's, it's, it, I think it depends on the elevation you are at as to what kind of vegetation you get. Yes, no, definitely. Uh, I think it, some of the temperatures, environments in the summertime, this area can get extremely hot. You can see 100 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe 110 on the high, high side. Doesn't get very cold. Uh, I would say maybe in the winter time, we might see 40, you know, low 30s, but not really freezing. We've, I've only seen snow maybe twice in my li- life at the lowlands and very light dusting. It does get snow on the peak though, right? Yes, it does. If it's cold enough, it'll, it'll stay there. You might see it for a few hours, maybe a couple of days, but not all that thick. I, I don't even think you would see two inches of snow. It's most years, though. Actually, I, it seems like most Januarys or Februarys, you do get at least one a good light storm. That, yeah, exactly. That gives it a light dusting. So a little bit about the, the geologic history and of Mount Diablo. They call it a geologic anomaly. I don't know if that's a technical term, but it's basically, they say, and it's also called an isolated upthrust peak. And so it was formed by plate tectonics, which is the way a lot of mountains on the West Coast here of the United States were formed, because you've got a plate off the coast crashing into the the continental plate of the United States. And it lies between two earthquake faults. It's actually continuing to grow, even though it's doing so very slowly. Even though uh, it was formed by plate tectonics, Mount Diablo is not a volcano. What this all really means is that it basically dominates the landscape of this part of the East Bay, right? Oh, yeah. It's it's the landmark that, that I look for when I'm driving back home. I look, where's Mount Diablo? Exactly. And it's got two primary peaks. From the east, it looks almost like a double pyramid when you approach it from the central, um, the San Joaquin or Sacramento Valleys, and you're heading toward Mount Diablo from the east. It has this sort of double pyramid look. There's the main peak, which is 3,849 feet or 1,173 meters, and then what they call North Peak, which is 3,557 feet and 1,084 meters. And you've been to the top of both both peaks, right? Uh, no, I have. Uh, I also, there's the other one, which uh, I, I know it as Eagle's Peak. That's when I climbed a bit as a child. <laughs> yeah, Eagle Peak. That's right. I've hiked up that many times. It's a nice lookout, a nice spot that's um, maybe two-thirds of the way up the mountain. Mm-hmm. And North Peak was also the name of my, I have to say, the name of my award-winning black lager that I used to make when I was a home brewer. Uh, I named it after the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only thing you could see after drinking enough of it. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. And you also mentioned the long view from the peak, which from the summit, the main summit of Mount Diablo, the amazing 360-degree view, which it's really famous for. You can see to the east all the way to the Sierra Nevada. Yep. You can see on a clear day, you can on see a clear day. snow. Yeah, you can see snow capped peaks in the Sierra Nevada mountains across the San Joaquin and Sacramento valleys. You can also see San Francisco and Oakland. And you can see to the north Mount Tamalpais in Marin County and Mount St. Helena in, you know, a little bit north of Napa. And you can see, I'm not sure if it's all, but you can see almost all, if not all, of the bridges that are in the around the Bay Area going across San Francisco Bay. So the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, I think you can. You can see all of those bridges all around the Bay Area from the summit. 
describe for folks a little bit where this is. And we've said it's, you know, in the 20 to 25 mile range east of San Francisco, but we're we're still in a pretty urban environment up until you basically get to the foothills, right? Yeah, uh, I would describe by distance, would say if going from SFO, it's probably, I would say, 45 minutes by car. Growing up there, I, I would say it's a suburbia uh, in general, where you've got pretty good access to uh, the BART trains to go locations. But yeah, it's very, I think, accessible. Interestingly enough, there's a lot of people in the Bay Area, when you talk to them, they have no idea what it is. It's almost kind of that divide. If you're over in San Francisco and the Oakland, which is more, I would say is more urban, they don't know what it is and they may not even be able to see it, actually. Yeah, it's not until you come through the East Bay Hills that are on the edge of Oakland and Berkeley that you actually see it. So you have to get past Oakland and Berkeley through the Caldecott Tunnel, uh, yes. whether by car or on the BART train, to, to see this part of the central Contra Costa County and to see Mount Diablo. And as we said, it's more stark and more obvious from the Eastern approach. Yes. Um, but one of the, and so, and today, as we were um, talking about, it's in a sort of suburban environment. It's up against the cities of Walnut Creek, where I live, uh, the city of Concord and the city of Clayton. And you grew up in Clayton for I, most I of your childhood. Small little town, literally in the foothills of Mount Diablo from the housing track that I grew up, which is a brand new one in the seventies. I could walk. 15 minutes from my house, hop a bob wire fence and be out in the, I guess, the foothills playing army with cows and my friends. <laughs> so did you do that? Did you, did yeah. you go explore the open space there on the edge of Mount Diablo? Yeah, there was a, it was really a lot of, a lot of this area is ranch land, I would say. Uh, if we go further south, I'm in the San Ramon Danville area. And even earlier, Walnut Creek was orchards, you know, walnuts. And it was agricultural if we went back to, I would say, 1940s, maybe even before, 1950. But yeah, there was uh, what we call the reservoir. It's where, the, you know, where the, there was a man-made pond where, you know, the cows would go to drink. I, I've swam in that as a little kid, played around that area, even when I was as young as, honestly, like 9, 10, 11 years old, I've hiked to the top of uh, Eagle's Peak. It was a neighborhood where parents just said, hey, come back at by 5 o'clock for dinner or 6 o'clock. You could run around and feel safe. It was a different time. That's great to have that right there and be able to, you know, it's such a resource that a lot of people just don't have today or even then. So you've hiked in that area for most of your life. Have you hiked all the way to the summit of Mount Diablo? I have repeatedly, uh, when I was younger, a few times, but more recently, as an example, when we were preparing for a trip to Nepal, part of my training was hiking from the bottom to the top and back down, you know, I don't know if that was 11 or so miles, but that, that was part of my training regimen to go up and down that thing every weekend. And you and, you and I have actually, I think, hiked a couple of times to the top and back together over yeah. the years. Yeah. And so today we're not going, we're not here to talk necessarily about the summit hike, which we've, we've done. And I should mention, by the way, that the summit hike from my front door to the top of Mount Diablo is about a 24 mile or 39 kilometer round trip hike. And I've done it several times and every time it absolutely destroys me. It is a brutal hike because, you know, it's several thousand feet up and a huge amount of distance. Yeah, it's it's kicked my butt. I know on one of those trips we were hiking with some of the backpacking light people, I I was wiped out. I was done. And I guess we should mention that there's a road to the top, so you don't actually have to hike to the top. We're just not but, smart. Um, 
No, <laughs> but you know, actually it's, it's worked to my advantage sometimes because I've actually hiked to the top and been picked up sometimes. So I have the option to go halfway that can make it a much easier hike. Yes. <laughs> you could go halfway downhill only if you wanted to. I guess the, the focus today is really on a hike that it doesn't go to the summit, but I thought it was worth talking about that because that's a, a really wonderful day hike you can do. But the focus today is on a hike that really kind of travels along the edge of Mount Diablo. And so we'll get to that. And so this hike, the Diablo Trail, sort of follows along the skirt of the mountain, goes partway up and not all the way to the summit. So just want to make that clear that the hike we're talking about doesn't actually go to the summit of Mount Diablo. So, Tony, although you are a native of this area, you are not the first native. No. Did you, did you know that? <laughs> yes, I did. I know so that before sure. the Wongs, before the Wongs came to Clayton, it might not be surprising to you to know that this was an area that was sacred to many native Californian groups. Uh, for example, the Miwok and Ohlone peoples thought of Mount Diablo as the point of creation. One group of Ohlone called it Tuishtak, which means at the dawn of time. And it was originally within the territory of the Volvone, which is a, a Miwok-speaking tribe. Uh, the Spanish originally called it the Cerro Alto de los Volvones, which meant the high point of the Volvones, so that it was the high point of the, the range of this particular peoples. Interestingly, the, the, the current name, Mount Diablo, is wrapped up in a clash that the natives had with uh, Europeans who later came to the area, and that resulted in the current name. Do you know the story of this? I actually do not. Okay, so here's here's the story, and and I'll say in advance that nobody knows if this is actually true, okay. <laughs> but we'll go with it. So in 1805, Spanish military troops were, at the time, this California was still uh, part of Spain. It was before Mexico was independent and before the United States took over this part of uh, the Western half of the continent or Western part of the continent where California is. In 1805, Spanish military troops were looking for uh, Native Americans who had run away from a Spanish mission. They had set up these missions along the coast, uh, up and down California, try to convert the natives into Christians as part of what they were doing. A lot of times the, the natives weren't that interested in doing that. <laughs> I and wonder why. Would, uh, <laughs> would not hang around. And in this particular time, they were looking for uh, these natives who had left the mission. And in an area that's currently in Concord, they surrounded a camp of a group of uh, Chupcan people. And the group had retreated to kind of a backwater, backcountry kind of area. It was a thicket of willows. And they had, they had them surrounded. And in the middle of the night, the native group escaped. And the Spanish found out the next morning that they were gone. They called the area Monte del Diablo. Now, Monte has two meanings in Spanish. The one that I was always familiar with is it just means a hill. But another meaning for Monte is undeveloped sort of backcountry or bush. Or as you might, you know, a thicket of willows might be something that you would call a monte. Um, so the meaning of Monte del Diablo was really thicket of the devil. And it really referred to this, you know, anger that the Spanish had because they had been uh, una unable to um, find the, the native group there that escaped in the middle of the night. And neither meaning of Monte that I've just described is a uh, full-size mountain, right? That's a different word. That's montaña. But later English speakers saw Monte del Diablo on maps 
which was close to the mountain, and thought it referred to the mountain. As the story goes, that's how California got its devil mountain. It's Monte del Diablo, or Mount Diablo, as we call it today. Or at least, as I said, that's the legend. No one really knows if that's true. So today, Mount Diablo is part of a state park called Mount Diablo State Park. Uh, Though there are dozens of preserves acquired at different times that create a patchwork that has protected the area from development. The trail actually, the, the, the Diablo Trail, actually goes through six different protected areas. And as we've talked about, there's oak woodland, which is a a prominent kind of oak savanna um, terrain, which is a prominent feature. There's open grassland. There's chaparral, which is kind of more thick, uh, drought-resistant bushes that grow tend to grow on south-facing slopes where they get more sun and less water. There's a lot of poison oak. There's a lot of wildflowers. Yes. Yes, Poison oak. Always a... Yeah, we're always avoiding the poison oak, and it can get quite large out here. Uh, There are lots of wildflowers, in particular in the spring, the California poppies, the orange California poppies can be quite beautiful. And there's quite a bit of wildlife. What kind of animals, if people came from another place, what kind of animals could they expect to see here that... Um, we have here that are sort of our regular native species. Well, certainly there's, I think deer is probably the largest thing that I've seen. What else we've seen? I think we've seen maybe coyote, maybe fox, nothing really larger than that. Uh, squirrels. I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you've you've hit some of the big ones. The there's deer here, the mule deer. Though, right? Yes. Yeah, so the mule deer are very, there's a large population of deer all in this area. And there's a, you see them in neighborhoods and also in the open spaces and in the park spaces. There's also, as you mentioned, squirrels. The native squirrels here are ground squirrels that dig holes. There's also tree squirrels, but those are actually not native. There are definitely coyotes. I see them out there quite often. There's bobcats, which I've seen several times. I have seen a bobcat, yes. Yeah. And there's fox, as you mentioned. Um, when we used to have chickens at our house here, they, they used to come here and dine at our buffet. <laughs> and as you mentioned, there is an occasional mountain lion, which for most of the part, we're very lucky not to have to run into because they're quite shy and uh, hunt in certain times of day when we're typically not out there, or at least not out there where it's quiet enough or or out there where it's far enough away from other people for them to be there. And frankly, I don't know what the population of mountain lions is in this area, but they definitely exist. And with a healthy deer population, they're well fed and they don't need... Um, to be a problem for people. Every now and then I'll run into a, a deer kill, a carcass. Which I have, is, you know, when I was younger, yeah, I've seen that. So you, you've you seen that before? Oh yeah, completely got it out. Oh yeah. Exactly. And so the, the mountain lions are definitely out there. There's also quite a few snakes. We yeah. see rattlesnakes quite regularly. Yes. <laughs> that's a, That's not our favorite thing to run into, but I always tell people rattlesnakes are actually the best poisonous snake because they're the only one that that warns you they that they're there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the tarantulas too, are kind of a, can be a big deal in the hills. Yeah, exactly. In the fall, you yes. see the tarantulas come out. Those are, I'm told those are the males that they, they come out at something like after seven years and they go to look for the female. They finally find her in her hole. They mate and then she kills him. You know, I might be willing to risk that after seven years. <laughs> <laughs> I might be willing to yeah. risk that. <laughs> There's also uh, king snakes, which are called king snakes because they eat rattlesnakes. So those are actually a nice snake to have around and gopher snakes and lots of different kinds of raptors, uh, hawks, falcons, uh, kites, kestrels, 
And of course, turkey vultures, which anytime anything dies, they start circling. What about turkeys? Oh, you're right. Yes. Lots of wild turkeys. turkeys. Those are not native to the Western right. United States either, but they are everywhere. I mean, they're, it's like having a herd of dinosaurs in your front yard when you get up in the morning sometimes <laughs> in this area, because you've got these huge turkeys wandering around your yard. Free Thanksgiving meal right there. Exactly. So to tell the conservation history of this trail in this area, you have to start with an organization called Save Mount Diablo, which was formed in 1971 by Art Bronwell and Dr. Mary Lee Bowerman. It was, this organization was created to protect the mountain and its slopes. Uh, Bowerman dreamed that the whole of the mountain, including its foothills, will remain open space. And that's been its goal since its founding. And the efforts of Save Mount Diablo have tripled the size of Mount Diablo State Park and protected a, a number of areas around the state park. Now, I want to talk for a few minutes about the history of the trail itself. I had never heard of this trail when I first moved to the area in 2005. Had you ever heard of this trail before I brought it to your attention, Tony? No, I had never heard of it before, which was I thought was kind of surprising, actually. And so the way I heard of it was um, I have a neighbor named Ron Brown, and Ron Brown, for a long time, until um, somewhat recently was the executive director of Save Mount Diablo. And he, I think one holiday year, his wife brought cookies over or something like that. And with it, I received a, as a gift a map. And it was a map of um, the entire area. It included a highlighted section on the map of this trail. So it had, a, had the route for the Diablo Trail on the map. And it was a map that Save Mount Diablo produced, I think, in conjunction with REI. And it was first produced in 2007. And that was the first time I'm aware of the, this trail being identified as something that you could do as a, a singular trail that you could do from end to end. Save Mount Diablo actually has an event each year where they uh, take people and hike the entire trail with them. I think it's a, a fairly leisurely pace and they do it over maybe four days. That's one way you could do this if you don't want to uh, do it on your own. Do you know how old that uh, this group is? So Save Mount Diablo was created in 1971. Okay. Well, growing up, one of the things that kept coming about is there were fundraisers and they wanted to buy, they always said, we want to buy land from either the, the, the cattle ranchers. There's also that mine that was is not too far. And they said, we want to buy land from that mine because it is kind of a little scar on the the peripheries of, of Mount Diablo. That's right. There are uh, some mines in the area. There were, there's silica mines, there's coal mines. Uh, there's actually another protected space in the East Bay called Black Diamond Mines that it was a coal mining area. And then later a silica mine, basically a sand mine sand glass. To, for glass. Exactly. I actually went on a tour of that with Justin, my son, when he was younger and in Cub Scouts, they, it's a really neat, huge underground mine. Yeah, it's quite interesting. There. Yeah. And so there's, yeah, there's definitely been efforts to protect a lot of the spaces around Mount Diablo. So my neighbor, Ron Brown, brought over this map, and that was when I saw that there was such a trail. And Tony, what happens to me when I look on a map and I see that there's a long-distance trail on it? You think of suffering and you want to invite me along to join you. Exactly. So <laughs> if there's a trail on a map, I have to hike it. And it was great to see something so close to home. That literally ends almost at my front door. So um, Ron, and by the way, as I think I mentioned, has since retired and 
is no longer part of Save Mount Diablo, but it has a new executive director and is still going strong. The Diablo Trail connects existing fire roads for the most part. So these most of the trail is are fire roads that were already there, so dirt roads, except there's one point where there's a single track trail called the Oyster Point Trail, and that's within Mount Diablo State Park, and that's the only uh, single track part of the trail. So, Tony, let's start talking about the trail itself. Why would somebody want to do this hike? Well, I think the first thing is just it's very accessible. It really is in our backyard. And I don't think that the trail in itself is super difficult to do. Again, we got those rolling hills. It's not huge elevation gain. And it's also, I think, really neat to be able to see a different part of what is your backyard that is fairly remote and still somewhat, I guess, pristine. So I think the accessibility being number one, and it is pretty, depending on the time of the year, too. I find it amazing, too, that you can go in this area and hike for 30 miles or about 50 kilometers and really feel like you're out there. I mean, you don't really see any civilization, despite that you are heading right toward it and and you are so close to it. And so I think that is the biggest appeal of this hike is that this is a real adventure right on the edge of a vast urban space. And that's a, I think that's a rare thing to have such a, at least in the United States, that may be more common in Europe and other parts of the world. But it's, it's really a great adventure right outside my front door. And for me, that's what's most interesting. So I think I agree with you there. You, you did mention that it is a pretty hike too. And we yeah. hiked this in a- April when it was quite beautiful. Yeah, probably Mount Diablo, I think has two views of it or, or looks. In the early spring, it's green rolling hills. It's beautiful. It's lush. It's vibrant. Later on, as we get into the summer and the fall, it's just a dry, brown rolling hill. Charming in its own way, but I, I, I love kind of that green rolling hill period of time, that early spring. It's, it's a short-lived but beautiful view. That's exactly right. And In the fall, as you mentioned, it's got people, you said brown, but you know, I think some people might call it golden, the golden hills of California, right? Like the Golden State Warriors. Uh, (laughs) Sure. (laughs) You get baked at 100 degrees, I say brown. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Tony, you mentioned what it's like in the spring and in the fall. And really, those are the best times to go, right? Spring and fall. You don't want to be there in the height of summer. No, absolutely. Spring and fall is wonderful. If I are honestly doing day hikes recreationally, I don't want to be there in the summertime. It's just baking. It can be dangerous. It gets hot. And there's no water. There's no water. It gets very hot. Yeah. And so we did this in early April. And you might think, well, that's a great time because it's this beautiful spring. But we actually ran into some weather. Uh, Yes. Chance to use the seldom used rain gear, actually. Yeah, we got rained on. And one of the things that I have to mention about this area is the adobe clay soil. And when it rains hard, it just becomes a sloppy mess where you can barely keep your footing. Yeah, it, it's slippery. It sticks. Uh, and we have like giant mud dirt clods, if you want to say, on, on the soles of your shoes. It makes your boots super heavy or even trail runners. It's, it's, it's pretty messy. <laughs> it's pretty messy. And so for, for gear for this trip... I don't think of any, there's nothing really special you need. I would think standard backpacking gear would work quite well. It's not high elevation, so you don't have to worry about huge temperature swings. I mean, obviously early spring, late fall, it can still be cold at night. But for the most part, 
pretty much standard backpacking gear. Yeah, it, it's pretty it, pretty mild actually in a lot of respects. Yes, on the summer in the warmer months you can go to get away with even lighter gear, lighter clothing, lighter sleeping bag because it's it's warm. For navigation, uh, the map I mentioned is really the main map. They still make it. It's been updated a few times since I first got a copy of the map. It's called Mount Diablo. Los Vaqueros and surrounding parks featuring the Diablo Trail. So if you look all that up, you will find it. All right, to get to this hike, it's in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area, as we mentioned. To get to this hike, you take Marsh Creek Road in Brentwood, California, and you're heading to Round Valley Regional Preserve, which is where if you're going to go from east to west, which is the way we did the hike, that's where you're going to be starting the hike. I don't think it's a huge difference doing it east to west or west to east. It's it's really whatever you prefer. I think east to west worked. I mean, obviously it worked great for me because it's basically walking home. But I think it does work best because transportation is going to be, you're going to be in the more urban area when you finish that way. And you'll be, it'll be much easier place to leave a car and to get back into to civilization. I think dramatically is a view too. It probably is nicer. You're going towards the mountain versus leaving the mountain. I don't know, just my opinion. Oh, okay. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you're mostly going toward the mountain when you're going east to west. Yes. Otherwise, it'd be at your back. I mean, it's still a city. It's pretty. You get to see everything. But I'm going towards the mountain. There's my objective goal. I think that's right. For most of it, you are. But the last few miles, you're past it. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of maybe two-thirds of the way through, you're kind of even with it. So yeah, that's... Honestly, I think it could probably go either way. But let's go with the, the route we took, because that's what we know. Yeah. All right. And so as far as accommodations, you know, you're in a big urban area. I'm not going to go into anything specific there. Easy to find accommodations if you want something before or after the hike. Also, one thing to keep in mind is, as Tony mentioned, it gets very dry in the fall. And so keep an eye on reports about forest fires and grass fires. So it's always good to check on kind of how things are with respect to fire hazard if you go in the fall. If you go in the spring, that's not an issue. There are two. We did this hike as an overnight hike, as a single overnight hike. But I think what I would recommend is doing this hike as a three-day, two-night hike. And there are two campsites you would want to think about for doing it that way. First is through the East Bay Regional Parks, you can reserve a campsite in Morgan Territory. And that's where we camped. Do you remember the site, Tony? Is it Morgan Hill or Morgan Camp? Yeah, I think it was just called Morgan Backpack Camp. And so if you go to the East Bay... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was pretty basic. I recall there was a picnic table. There was maybe a pit toilet and there was some water. I have a picture of a there pit was toilet. Well water. There was well yeah. water. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. All right. So I will, I'll, I'll stand by your photos then. Yes, there were, there is a pit toilet and, <laughs> and a, uh, there's a well, there's well water. So there's a, essentially a water spigot and it's fenced off from the surrounding, um, cattle that might be in the area so that you have, you're not bothered by cows if they're in the area. I'd still filter. And you could, did we still filter water? I've got a picture of me using the gravity filter. The bag was on my head. Yeah, probably. (laughs) I don't know whether the water is potable, but that's probably a good precaution to take. And so you can reserve the the campsite through the East Bay Regional Parks. The other place to to camp is called Live Oak Campground, and that's within uh, Mount Diablo State Park. And you can reserve that through uh, the Reserve California website, which is what the state park uses for its campgrounds. Um, I should note that the second campground, the Live Oak Campground, is 
a car campground. So you're not, it's not a backpacker campground like the first one. The Morgan Territory campground is just a backpacker campground. And we'll, I'll talk as we go through the itinerary, I'll point out where those campsites are. As I mentioned, the distance is about 30 miles or about 50 kilometers. As I said, I recommend doing this as a three-day trip and spending two nights as we just talked about. But Tony, you and I did not do that, did we? No, because we're never smart. We're just kind of pushing. <laughs> yeah, so we, we did this as a one-night trip. Uh, in fact, <laughs> not, do you know how long it took us to do this trip? I looked up in my article and in my notes, because I, I once wrote an article like about this for half. Backpacking Light. Really of time. Not Not even. We did we did this trip in twenty five point five hours total, <laughs> including our sleeping. Now, Grant, this was a number of years ago. Was it ten years ago? Or? Yeah, we yeah. did this in about twenty in twenty ten, I believe. And we got we got dropped off at three thirty in the afternoon, and then the next day we were at my house by five p.m. Yeah, <laughs> despite the rain and the sloppy hiking. To get to this hike, you're going to need someone to drop you off at the Round Valley Preserve end of the hike on Marsh Creek Road, or you can leave one car there and one car at the other end or vice versa, have somebody pick you up at the finish. But basically, it's a car shuttle trip from point to point. It's not a huge amount of distance uh, between the two. I don't know, maybe I'm not sure how long of a drive between the two, but it's doable if you want to split the cars up. It might be it's probably less than an hour drive, probably half an hour even. So your basic itinerary, as I mentioned, you start in Round Valley Regional Preserve, and that's the first three miles of the hike or the first five kilometers. And you start on a trail called the Miwok Trail, which is appropriately enough named after after the, the people who lived in the area uh, at one time. And what did you think of the first part of this hike? What do you remember about it? I remember it being, again, kind of the dirt trail, you know, road basically, like a fire road. I'm sure they just get a bulldozer and scraped it on out. It, was, it wasn't raining on us, I think, at that point. The clouds were kind of gray. There, you'd see cows, definitely, because it's a ranch area. Lots of cows. Yeah, we had cows in the middle of the path right, that we had to sort trail. of skirt around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have that kind of going on. But uh, again, very green, lush hills. Roll, rolling, rolling hills, hills Rolling right? hills, definitely. Yeah. I agree. It was a very nice hike through that part of the trail. The, be- the beginning was a, it set the tone as just sort of a peaceful, relaxing, although somewhat challenging at times because you are going up and down hills, but at least this part of it was a valley. So it had a nice peaceful feel where you're kind of walking through the valley and uh, round Valley regional preserve is 1,911 acres or 773 hectares. It became part of the East Bay regional parks in 1988 and was open to the public in 1998. Uh, A ranching family had owned this area since 1873, and the grandson ultimately sold uh, the area to prevent housing from being developed on the area. And also the other option, there were two competing development plans. One was housing. The other one was a refuse dump. So they were going to build a dump out there. Nice. Uh, And luckily they did neither, and the grandson turned it over to be preserved. And now we have it as the beginning of this hike. So that's a success story in creating open space that we can now enjoy. There are definitely, as Tony mentioned, cattle grazing in this area. Often it's a protected area. All, all of these areas that, I'm, that we're going to be talking about are protected areas, but also have lots of cattle. And it's because over the, a lot, as 
we mentioned these areas originally were ranching establishments. And I think the arrangements that were struck to turn these into preserved spaces also preserved the right to to graze cattle in these areas. And so it's, I think, a trade-off that's well worth it. Although there's cattle out there grazing, there's at least not houses or a refuse dump. Yeah. No, it's a good trade-off. And so the next space we went through after the first few miles is called Los Vaqueros Watershed. And that was just a quick jaunt through uh, 1.25 miles of really a trail that's just like we were still on the Miwok Trail. So that's about two kilometers of trail. And we were still on, it didn't look anything noticeably different to me from what Round Valley looked like. The Los Vaqueros Watershed was opened in 1989 as part of the Contra Costa Water District. And in 1998, it was open for recreation. It's about 20,000 acres, so quite a big space, uh, which is 8,094 hectares. Most of what this is is a reservoir, which is water for 550,000 people. But that reservoir was not visible from the part of the trail that we went through. And really what we just did is kind of skip through a little corner of this protected space. And at the end of it, you might remember this, as we got to the end of the valley, we started to ascend through some chaparral and some oak. And that's where we were kind of going up through Los Vaqueros and into the next, into Morgan territory. That was kind of my recollection is kind of almost going up along ridge lines. And yeah, the it's sun about a th- broke out. I thought a few times from the clouds. A couple good. Pictures. I don't remember any sun on this trip. I remember being cold and wet. <laughs> That's the majority <laughs> of it. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, but the trail ascends thirteen hundred feet there, so about four hundred meters up. Uh, so it's quite a incline there, and you're going through oaks and chaparral, and you end up in the Morgan Territory Regional Preserve, which is our third protected space that this trail goes through, and ten miles of the trail go through Morgan territory. So about 16 kilometers. At this point, the Miwok trail ends and you start onto a trail called the blue Oak trail. And as you just mentioned, Tony, there was a ridge there and this is where you hike along a ridge and you have views east to the Sacramento and and San Joaquin river Delta. Do you recall that? I don't recall exactly, but I suspect that this part of the trip we were starting to get drizzled on. Cause I, I, I remember we had to put on our rain ponchos or poncho tarps, which kind of look ridiculous huh <laughs> yeah so i confess i don't exactly remember i remember having a nice high view of the valleys and i remember seeing um the windmills out there there's a quite a big yeah. there's some wind farms that are out in the stockton area and if you look east out into those valleys you see you see some of that after the hike along the ridge you switch to what's called the highland ridge trail and then you cross morgan territory road which is a, a paved road it's a remote rural road. I don't I don't think there was anybody anywhere in the vicinity when we crossed the road. No, there wasn't. It was pretty pretty barren or empty. So Morgan Territory was um created in 1976 and this was Save Mount Diablo's first acquisition with private funds. Morgan Territory is 4708 acres or 1905 hectares and it's named after Jeremiah Morgan who owned the ranch in 1857. There's 10 miles of trail of the Diablo Trail in Morgan Territory, but pretty early on in that section is where you hit the Morgan Backpack Camp, which is not too far after the road, if I remember. Yeah, I don't remember. Maybe a couple miles after the road. Yeah, we had to do some uphill, I think. some uphill. But by the time we got, I remember when we got to the camp, it, it was dark. Yeah, we didn't, as I mentioned, we didn't start until 3.30 yeah. in the afternoon. So, uh, and so in April, there was not a lot of light left. Yeah. 
And so we got to Morgan Backpack Camp, which is eight miles in out of the 30-mile trail, about 13 kilometers in. And that camp was established in 2001. It was actually a former home site. Uh, And as I mentioned, it's fenced off from cattle and there's well water there. And then day two, I'm not going to talk about yet what we did. I'll talk about what you should do. What you should do (laughs) for day two is you should hike 14 miles to the Live Oak Campground, which is about 23 kilometers. We instead did 22 miles of hiking, which is about 36 kilometers. (laughs) We're not bright. All right. So after you, what's that? We're not bright. (laughs) No, not always. I think what was happening is my uh, dad was coming to visit and I had to be home for dinner with him. Yes. You, we were under a little time pressure. That always And when we got, I think when we got to my house, he was actually like sitting on the front porch waiting for us. He was, because I have a picture of him there with your son who looked really young. (laughs) What's that? Just, oh, my son. Yeah, he, he looked very young. Because how old is he now? He's almost 18. Yeah. yeah. He's 17, almost 18. Yeah. And yeah, he, so that was 10 years ago. Eight so he years. was seven. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So th- after the 10 miles of Morgan Territory, you head into Mount Diablo State Park. So we're on our fourth protected space. And in Mount Diablo State Park, the trail has 11.75 trail miles or about 19 kilometers and at this point, it starts to climb and skirt kind of the western flank of the mountain. And again, it doesn't go anywhere near the summit, but it does go kind of go uphill along the edge. It crosses uh, Tassajara Creek, and that's where it connects to the Oyster Point Trail, which is the only single track. And do you remember what happened when we tried to find the Oyster Point Trail? Is that where we came to a sign that said, end of trail? Yeah, we got we lost. Got- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which is not terribly unusual for us. And we we made a wrong turn up a canyon, and we ran into a trail sign that said, end of trail. And uh, I think the canyon is appropriately named Jackass Canyon, I'm told. (laughs) Because you'd have to be a jackass to hike it? (laughs) I I don't know why it's named Jackass Canyon. Maybe somebody lost their donkey up there once upon a time. But I certainly felt like a jackass when we got there at the end of the trail and had to turn around and go back. But we eventually found the Oyster Point Trail. Uh, So Mount Diablo State Park, became a park in 1930. There was a bond measure funding state parks and there was a number of state parks that came into existence at that came into existence at the time. And within a decade, the properties around it were acquired to expand the size of the park. Originally it was pretty much just the summit of Mount Diablo, but pretty quickly it was ex- expanded to 19,000 acres or 7,690 hectares. And at this point, after the Oyster Point Trail, you connect to Blackhawk Ridge Road, and then you come across Southgate Road, which is a paved road that goes through the park coming up from Danville, right? Yeah. And we, we actually stopped for lunch there, I believe. At, at, at least this is the way I, I somehow in my, I think it was in the article I wrote, it said we stopped for lunch. We stopped for lunch at Curry Point Parking Lot, and there was water available there. So that's good to know if you're looking for um, potable water. There's water available at that Curry Point parking lot when it meets Southgate Road. It then becomes the Wall Point Road. And Wall Point Road starts right where there's an area called Rock City. Do you remember Rock City? Oh, yeah. Uh, That's a real popular place, actually, I would say, for the locals to uh, to take their children. They're they're natural sandstone uh, formations that I was told that because of the winds, I don't know if it's driving gravel or so kind of carved into these kinds of little caves and holes into the sandstone, if that's true. 
Yeah, we used to take our kids there all the time and they loved climbing the rocks there. And I have to tell you, I always thought it was really cool because they're really neat rocks and there's some really cool climbing you can do. But it's dangerous. <laughs> Even now when I go there and look, I'm like, we let our kids climb on these things? I mean, you could fall kids could fall off and die quite easily. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting old. But when I when we when we used to take our kids there, I don't think I had that kind of recognition as much. But anyway, it is a really neat area uh, with lots of amazing rock formations and places for kids and adults alike to crawl around and check things out. Uh, so if you get to, and by the way, this is very close to Live Oak Campground. So if you're going to Live Oak Campground, it's just below Rock City and you've got your place to stop for the night. And if you have time, it's worth it just to walk around and it see is. Rock City. It's very otherworldly in some ways. It really is. Yeah, it's interesting. And so if you're at Live Oak Campground, you've got eight miles left to go the next day, and that's 13 more kilometers. And you follow Wall Point Road. And Wall Point Road, I think, is kind of an interesting trail or dirt road along this route because it's really mostly chaparral. You kind of come out of the grasslands, out of the oak, and you've got this south-facing road that faces um, it's more southeast, I guess. I'm sorry, more southwest. It faces toward Danville. And so because it's southwest facing, it gets a lot of sun. You, it's got mostly kind of chemise and scrub oak and manzanita and all these other kind of really water-resistant plants. And it's a very different kind of ecology, a very different kind of ecosystem than most of the rest of the trail. I think, isn't it at this point, too, you're also coming in contact, at least visually, with more of civilization? Because I have a couple of pictures of some very large mansions being built. They were walking you could see him in the distance. Yes. If you, my understanding is, or at least what Ron Brown of Save Mount Diablo told me was that some of these huge homes that were developed down there, it was again, another one of these deals where they allowed them to develop some of these homes that were kind of up against the hills, but in exchange, they protected additional space that came down to meet those spaces. And so it was another one of those compromises where, you know, they were able to protect a significant amount of space, but on the flip side, these there were some massive homes yeah. that were built where you can see them from the trail, although they're quite they're still quite a ways in the distance. Ways. But yeah, well you can you can see all the way down into the San Ramon Valley and, and across to Las Trampas, another open space from that area. Yeah, I think but it's a very exclusive, very wealthy area. Yes, it's the I guess the Blackhawk area of Danville. Yeah. You know, I think some of the houses like five thousand square feet, maybe even bigger. Pretty, pretty oh, crazy. Th no, some of the ones, some of the ones that you can see from the trail are probably five times yeah, that. They're it's huge. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They're not that many of them, but you, you couldn't fit that many of <laughs> 25,000 square foot homes up there. So yeah. I, I don't know how big they are. I'm just, I, but they're quite large. Some of the homes that are up there and, and, and some of them are tasteful. Some of them aren't, you know, how that can be with these gigantic homes, but for the most part, they don't, I don't think they spoil the view too no. much. I feel like it gives you something different to look at. You're kind of on the edge of the park space. And so you're kind of looking into civilization from there. Then as you come down from the Wallpoint Road back down to the sort of Oak Savannah, again, Oak Grasslands, you reach Diablo Foothills Regional Park, which connects with the state park. And that's about 1.5 miles of trail that goes through the regional park, about two and a half kilometers. And you're on a trail then called Briones Mount Diablo Regional Trail, which connects Mount Diablo State Park through a number of other areas and eventually to another open space called Briones that's mostly in the Lafayette uh, area, which is the next city over from Walnut Creek. 
Diablo Foothills Regional Park was created in 1976 and is part of the East Bay Regional Park System. It's about 1,060 acres and uh, 429 hectares. There's a, a part of that regional park that the trail doesn't actually go through that I think is worth checking out if you're there another time, which is called Pine Canyon or Pine Valley. That's a, a very beautiful uh, walk along a creek. But that's not part of this trail, but it's another uh, trail within that regional park that's worth seeing. After you leave Diablo Foothills Regional Park, you come into Shell Ridge Open Space. Shell Ridge Open Space is the sixth preserved space and the final one that makes up all the preserves that allow this trail to exist. And 2.5 miles of trail of the Diablo Trail goes through Shell Ridge Open Space, which is about four kilometers. And Shell Ridge Open Space is owned actually by the city of Walnut Creek, where I live, and it was created in 1974. Again, um, this was to stop residential development. And uh, honestly, the reason I moved here was because of the, the recreational opportunities it presents. It's fantastic to have this huge preserved open space up against the area where I live. And also, I think it was just, it said something about the kind of community I was moving to that they did something like that at such a critical juncture when all of this could have been developed. The Shell Ridge open space is about 2,700 acres or 1,093 hectares. The trail ends at Marshall Avenue Trailhead in Walnut Creek. And uh, so Tony and I got to the end of the trail, took a quick picture, and then walked to my house, which isn't all that far uh, from there. And as I said, my dad was waiting for us on my front porch. And so that was our hike of the Diablo Trail. Tony, did I miss anything? Maybe we talked about some, maybe some of the weather stuff. I mean, I think from an experience because of the rain, my hands were kind of, you know, at some points very wet, cold, frozen, and a couple little tricks kind of figured out. My feet were really cold that evening at the, at the campsite because just of all the, the dew or rain that collected on the grass, just our, our lower legs were just muddy and wet. Yeah, it's a good point. It's something that I've maybe I've pushed out of my mind. I do remember, <laughs> I do remember this being a wet and cold hike, and unusually cold even for for the time. Yeah. It was unusually cold for the time of year. It was early April, but typically it wasn't as wet or as cold in early April in this area. It was definitely we decided it was definitely wet and cold, and we just decided to go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah. And I'm glad we did because it's always a learning experience to be in different weather conditions. Sure. And um, yeah, and you. I think you have a little trick to keep your feet from being too cold, don't yeah, you? Yeah, this actually helped me out on the second day. And what I've been doing is using these plastic shipping bags. Or UPS is a shipping company. And these are really tough plastic bags. I mean, you can't really tear them with your hands very easily. They're free, so I actually cut them almost in half. I make a sock out of them. So it's kind of weird. I, I, I take my foot with the sock on, put it in this bag, and jam it into my trail hike uh, runners. And the result is I was actually very comfortable the second day, even though they're wet, mud-crusted shoes, even walking through the grass, my feet stay dry. They might get a little damp from sweat on the sock, but it's not frozen toes. And it weighs nothing. It's cheap, free. And I've actually carried them on every trip since. So it's, it's essentially, it's a way to have, when you come into camp and you've got wet socks and you've got wet shoes, it's a way to change into something dry without actually changing your shoes. You just take your, your socks off, you put on the bag, which is a, a barrier between your shoe and your foot, 
And then you can put your foot right back in your wet shoe and not be yeah. wet. I would actually put, I would do it with a pair of socks though, just because pl- skin on plastic is kind of a little uncomfortable, but yeah, it's a, it's a great way. And the nice thing is I hiked all that second day with that on. I didn't burn a hole through, through the uh, plastic. So it's very durable. So you hiked 22 miles in a UPS shipping bag on your feet. Now that you mentioned it, I sound like an idiot. <laughs> But yes, <laughs> I, I think I did take it off at one point in time. But yeah, it, it it's it really you know squishing through mud. It's crazy. I've actually done this trip. I've done this trip for snowmobiling. Uh, I've done it when I took the family to Disneyland and it rained on us. I just plastic bags. I know it's kind of wacky. It, it's a poor man's hey, vapor whatever barrier, works. actually. If if you think of it technically from that standpoint, the old bread bags. Yeah, I can't knock it if it works. Yeah. And it weighs very little. All right. Anything else on the Diablo Trail? If not, while I have you, I've got a couple more questions for you. Come to think of it, one of the things that's kind of intriguing, had I explored it more, and now that you're telling me, I'm kind of interested, because it covers so many different areas, it's almost like getting a little snapshot of each little area and say, hey, I might be interested in exploring more of those areas because there's a lot of day hiking that you can kind of do in these areas, each little preserves. Yeah, that's a good point. Mount Diablo has a ton of day hiking yeah. uh, possibilities. So does Morgan territory. Some of these preserves are a little smaller, like the round Valley one's not that huge. Mm-hmm. Um, even shell Ridge where right next to where I live, there's quite a bit of hiking you can do there. And so, yeah, this, there's almost unlimited hiking in these areas over you know, that I've done a lot of over the years. I guess one of the things I just, that really strikes me about this is how much space is preserved in this area and how much opportunity there is to, to do different kinds of hikes that can get you quickly away from the urban or even suburban environment that we're in. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a great um, resource for us to have in this area. We're lucky. We're very lucky. I was lucky to have that as my backyard growing up as a kid. Really. All right, Tony, while I have you though, I have two more questions. All right. Ask away. All right. So if you could do one trip again, basically exactly the same way you've already done it, which trip would you do again? Oddly, I would say it's Fraser Lakes, because I've actually done that trip again. So this is in the emigrant wilderness yes. just north of Yosemite, right? Yes. It's a trip that we took. We stayed. The Fraser Lakes is above Immigrant, uh, Immigrant Lake, which is a large lake. And about I want to say it's about 15 miles in from the trailhood. And we stayed there for lunch right there was a kind of a rock sitting out there and this beautiful scenic view of a kind of a i don't call high alpine lake just us we swam we had lunch dried off and then just kind of moved on our way but it was just so scenic i wanted to go back i have a picture of it at my cubicle in my office at my home my now wife when we were going out says you need to take me there which i did she wanted to kill me after the fact that i didn't really tell her it was about (laughs) maybe a half a mile or a mile off trail, but it's gorgeous. And I've always wanted to go back. So that is the one for sure I would say I would go back to because I, I have. I can't really say I've gone back to a lot of other places. That's cool. Yeah, it's a cross-country hike away from Emigrant Lake. So it's up above Emigrant mm-hmm. Lake in the Emigrant Wilderness. Not a terribly difficult cross-country uh, hike, but cross-country nonetheless. So it's still um, more challenging than trail hiking once you get past Emigrant Lake. And definitely a beautiful place. And that was cool that you took Nadezdi there um, when you went back to it. Definitely a special place. All right. One other question for you. Okay. 
What is your favorite backpacking meal? My favorite. Like if you had to eat the same backpacking meal every night for a week, what would you eat? Oh, I think it would be Indian food. I, I really like Indian food, maybe with mashed potatoes or just with naan. And it's just kind of easy to do. I, I, I'm, kind of, I've been, I'm really lazy. I have all these cookbooks on like backpacking meals. And I just kind of realized I just want to eat what I had for dinner before. I've actually taken Indian food from a restaurant, thrown it into my dehydrator, and packed that along. It's got, I think it's a lot of flavor. It's, it's tasty. It's, it's filling. Yeah, what's not to love? So let me get this straight, Tony. Your, your favorite backpacking meal is like two-year-old takeout leftovers? Possible. I've, actually, I've been known to uh, dehydrate <laughs> food and then vac seal it and throw it in my freezer for two or three years and then eat it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I, actually, I don't, I, it's not, it's funny you say that it, you're lazy. For me, it seems like too much work to do what you do, but maybe it's not that hard. Um, but vac sealing and, and even going through that exercise of dehydrating and vac sealing seems like too much work for me. Well, you're doing uh, freezer bag it, cooking. It is, that's, that's even lazier. <laughs> it's easy. Well, that's true. It's super and that, easy. And I, it's I did that for many years. Yeah. Now I've gotten even lazier and I just buy meals. I'm too lazy even to make my own freezer bag meals at this point. Uh, but it is it is a great, there is some appeal to the idea that you can just, you know, have your favorite leftovers from your favorite Indian restaurant and take them out into the wilderness and rehydrate them and have them waiting for you maybe a year after you bought them. That to me, that there is something fantastic about that. Yeah, or making a giant pot of, of chili and then dehydrating that. It's just the idea is to have my own meals ready to go. That, that was kind of the idea there. And you say this is something you could eat day after day, and I have seen you do it. Yes. But <laughs> we know I'm a little bit of a freak of nature. I have, I have virtually no sense of smell, so I'm sure I could probably eat dog food all the time and be okay. Oh, I, I think I switched it a few times on you, and you probably didn't even know. <laughs> no, that's not true. That's not true. I'm just, all right. Okay. Well, Tony, I appreciate you coming on the show to talk about the Diablo yeah. Trail. Thanks for coming on no, the show. Thank you for having me back again. Thanks to Tony Wong for coming on the show again. I hope you enjoyed that conversation about the Diablo Trail and that Tony and I have inspired you to get out and try to hike that trail. Or better yet, hike another trail that's very close to your own home, wherever that is. Keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail you've hiked, write me at trailsworthhiking at gmail. Dot com. Next month on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel a trail that goes village to village along an undeveloped coastline, along sheer cliffs and across golden sandy beaches. It follows footpaths locals used for centuries to access fishing spots. There's some tough hiking on sand mixed in with hiking coastal bluffs. Surprisingly, this hidden gem isn't in some obscure corner of the world, but is in continental Europe. On the next episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Jota Vicentina Fisherman's Trail in the Alentejo region of southwest Portugal. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, 
you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.